Starting a healthy routine and sticking to it are two very different things. Inevitably, we all skimp on that full night of sleep, skip a workout or two, or brush our teeth with a tired old toothbrush. We're not perfect, but we can do better. And Quip is a better electric toothbrush that can help. People brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. And don't we have enough hardness and abrasiveness in our life already? Quip's built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth evenly. Plus, there are no wires or a clunky charger, and it runs for three months on a single charge. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your health. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. I love Quip for a couple of reasons. One, I have to say, I wonder if they listen to the show because that whole like intro thing that they actually came up with about forgiving yourself and not being perfect is obviously something we talk a lot about on the show. So, hey, Quip, thanks for actually listening to the show. And number two, I like having things in my life that are like just a beautiful little thing, something that sparks joy, if you will, to coin a phrase. And Quip is a really well-designed toothbrush. Like It'll make you happy to handle it or makes me happy to handle it. And how many of you can say that about your toothbrush? I also do really like that they have the um, regular schedule of sending you a new brush head. And that $5 is actually pretty cheap if you go toothbrush shopping on a regular basis, which, of course, I don't actually do, but I bought a new toothbrush for travel recently. And there, you know, it's going to be $5 for a good toothbrush no matter where you go. So, Quip. Over 1 million happy, healthy mouths also love Quip the same way I do. It starts at just $25 if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now. You will get your first refill pack for free. Again, if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you will get your first refill pack for free. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's guest is Come to Symbolize That Project. Rick Wilson, former Republican, current never-Trumper and provocateur. He is back after an extended hiatus from this show. Do some slight previews here. We talk a bit, no, okay, we talk a lot about the impending doom that we both feel. We also talk about what you can do about that sense of impending doom. He answers my question about how he wound up voting in the Florida election, but I will do a minor spoiler here and tell you it wasn't a very satisfying answer. Yeah, I think that'll work. In any case, Rick is back, and he promised he won't be gone for as long as he was again. Here is Rick Wilson. Rick, it has been a long time. It has been a minute. Yes. And I was going to start off with a joke about how we don't have anything to talk about. But you know what? Time is too short to joke around. I have a long list of things to talk to you about. And I'm going to go with first the kind of insight that only you can offer our listeners, which is, Are you still talking to Republicans on the Hill? I am still talking to Republicans on the Hill. Absolutely. Tell me what is happening. (laughs) Like, explain to me. (laughs) So a lot fewer guys in the House these days because a lot of the people that I spoke to before either retired uh, or lost Mm. because they were the the remaining sane people. So we've got – we're now down to the sort of like uh, uh, Cletus and Lurleen caucus in the House for – you know, the reddest of the red state guys. On the Senate side, 
I will tell you an insight from a, a senior Senate staffer that that I got this morning. A guy who's who's uh, who's whose boss is up in 2020 mm. and who is publicly miserable right now because he is being forced to, you know, live in fear of a primary if he says one word against Trump or if he says we've got to stop this shutdown. But their numbers are showing how bad it is. The Senate's own pollster for the Senate caucus is telling them how bad this is. They know this is a losing proposition. They know their clock is running out and they know they're going to own this in 2020. It's just it's a perfect example of the misery that Donald Trump inflicts on these people because they have no moral courage to get away from it. And I can't think of truer words to say, but I guess I'm hoping to get from you like vicariously maybe from you talking to people on the hill. My mind is kind of frozen by this. Like, I, like everyone else, I, I guess I'm waiting for Tony Romo to explain what's going to happen next. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we can go down a rabbit hole of, of metaphors, too, about missed calls and whatnot. But I really feel like no one really knows how this is going to end. There is no end game. And the thing I keep on thinking to myself is, like, what the fuck is Trump thinking? And then I, re- I remember he's not thinking. Like Correct. This is all a, you know, a, an endless sort of spasm of Trump. This And look, we often ascribe to Trump some sort of plot or scheme in his head. It's all impulsive. It's all in the moment. It's all, how do I, you know, detonate one crisis to get into the next crisis? How do I keep the ball up in the air one more day? How do I... How do I keep, you know, my ass is on fire. Can I run fast enough to put it out? Or can I run fast enough where it doesn't hurt? And so everything is always about these short term. It's all till the next tribal council on the survivor or the next moment of table flipping on the housewives. It's always this drama that he wants to create. And he's he's getting what he wants in some ways right now, even though it's bad for him, even though it's bad for the country, even though it's bad for his party. He's getting what he wants. He doesn't want to talk about Robert Mueller and Rudy Giuliani going completely bonkerpalooza off the rails. He wants to talk about Nancy Pelosi won't let him speak in the House of Representatives. He wants to talk about you know the Covington kids. He wants to talk about anything but the big things in front of him. And I do feel like you know this is all very toddler soccer team, right? Like we just all like rush to the ball wherever it is and we're allowing him to be, you know, the biggest squattest, you know, guy on the team and just, you know, hog the ball or kick it wherever and then we all follow. And I wonder, you know, I mean, it's it's so easy to talk about him, but are you as a as a Republican operative, maybe even or former Republican operative, as amazed as I am at the media's willingness to just go along with this? Well, I think the most disappointing thing in the last couple of weeks is this complete failure of the media to understand that this is a prank. Yeah. And this endless thing like, Trump made an offer today. No, he didn't make an offer. This is like saying, uh, I want to buy this house from someone, but I want to pay them in quatloos or <laughs> or some imaginary <laughs> fucking currency. And it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so saying – I get my wall and you get me to to reopen the government. It's not a serious offer. It's not a serious thing. And the fact that he has defined the presidency down so far that the only thing we're talking about is whether or not he's going to get a wall or not, you know, that's playing Trump's game. It's so fucking stupid. And the media doesn't – they don't need to do the the, the fake Washington thing of treating it like there's a good faith offer on the table because that's the old way of doing things. 
what what blows my mind is this is like this is false equivalency like writ large in crayon Uh on the bathroom wall and i just want to spell it out in case people aren't clear like what has happened is he is holding hostage you know a situation that he created it's sort of like because you know with daca and tps a temporary protected status he's the one who took those things away and now he's saying he's putting on them on the table to make them deal. And it really is the most blatant example of hostage taking you can possibly imagine. Like we've used that metaphor with him before. Right. But it just blows my mind that this could be considered at all serious because. Look, I mean, it's the classic scene from the movie Blazing Saddles where the guy puts the gun to his own head and he says, watch out, he's crazy, he'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, except that he's putting the gun to his gov- the government's head and he doesn't realize that he's a part of the government. It really is that scene. And what I, when people ask me what's going to happen, what I keep on saying is that, like, you know, a nihilist will always win any fight, right? Because it's the nihilist who won't move if you throw rocks at his head. Like, it's the nihilist who won't move if he rocks at his friend's head. Like, if right. you have someone who doesn't believe anything is worth anything, <laughs> they will win any contest, you know. And we've turned this into that. And it's not that. It doesn't have to be that. That's no, what, that's and, and look, crazy. We, we have had this sort of slow motion collapse in this country since, I'm going to say since 2010. And we turned debate in the House and Senate into a, a thing of the past because debate now is merely a chance for one side or the other to go out and do a fundraising appeal for their email lists. I mean, you didn't think Ted Cruz was really trying to shut down the government over Obamacare. It was Ted Cruz raising money for his email lists. And, and the thing that happens on both sides of the political fence, we stopped doing budgets and we started doing nothing but CRs and these emergency spending bills and all this patchwork of, of bullshit. And we stopped having you know, a, a Congress that, that took its job seriously. And so when you've got somebody at, in the White House who wants chaos, who wants gridlock, who wants nothing but anxiety and destruction and nervousness so we can ride in and play the great man on the white horse, we as a country need to do something meaningful to deal with this. And you know, leadership in Congress has to do something meaningful to deal with it. You know, and I've given up on my party in the House, particularly displaying any kind of, of moral courage. Uh, they're done. And and like I said, most of my friends from the House, they're out now. We're left with, you know, the, the rump of the Trump movement uh, with those guys. And you, know, you, had, you had 22 members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, vote against keeping the U.S. in NATO yesterday. Mm. I mean, there, there used to be a common thread where Republicans and Democrats agreed on fundamental national security questions like, yeah, NATO is an alliance that's existed for 70 years and kept us out of a nuclear war in Europe. It's a good thing. It's a pretty solid good thing. Republicans loved it. Democrats loved it. Now we have to have this Trump era of, of you know, phony dick-swinging nationalism that, that leads to votes like that. I, I'm just – Washington is breaking itself faster because of Trump. There were things – there were cracks in, in the system. There were problems in the system on both political parties. But, you know, you're right. That as a nihilist, Trump is always going to blow up everything. And he doesn't care what the damage is. He doesn't care about these people. He doesn't care about the 800,000 government employees. The only thing I think he's going to start caring about is his own numbers. And those are collapsing even among Republicans right now. 
And we can talk about this just a little bit more. And then I want to actually move to some stuff that hasn't gotten covered <laughs> because people are busy talking about this. And it was an insight by Benji Sarlin on Twitter where he pointed out like this terrible polling. And he said, you know, the thing that doesn't get said for some reason in coverage of Trump is that he is just manifestly unpopular and always has been. Like yes. he is this is not an embattled president. This is not a president that's struggling. This is a president who is unpopular with a majority of the American people. And what I would add to that is that he gets covered as though this were some kind of an equivalent fight, as though there were as many people in the country that supported him as didn't support him. He gets covered as though those MAGA chuds were somehow equivalent to the people who just who want something different. Right. And, you know, if you look at the numbers right now in the private polling, they're showing about what the sort of poll averages are showing, where Trump's number approval number right now is about 36, 35 percent. Now, that would be a red alert, screaming hot mess for any president. Mm hmm. He has a boundary layer where he doesn't ever get above about 42, 43%. He has a boundary layer on the bottom that we thought was there at about 36, 37%, <laughs> but now he's drifting below it. And I, I think the secret of that, and I think the reason the shutdown will end, is that a lot of the people that are being hurt by this shutdown, in the eyes of the MAGA folks, look a lot like the MAGA folks. I mean, these are not government officials who are riding around in limousines in, in D.C. with security no, guards. These are clerks. These are $40,000, yeah. $35,000, $32,000 a year people, you know, working TSA and places like that. And at some point, you know, Kevin Hassett from the White House today came out and said, look, we're going to have zero economic growth uh, this quarter if this keeps up. You know, and so so blowing up the GDP to own the libs, you know, that affects Wall Street. But these stories from these folks are penetrating the lives of, of people across the country. And, you know, I spoke to somebody yesterday who was a federal employee in Florida. And the guy just said, he goes, you know, I'm showing up for work every day. He says, but, you know, Citibank doesn't care about excuses. After, you know, 30 or 60 or 90 days, I'm going to be in real trouble. And I've got to pay a mortgage coming up in less than a week. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. I told him, I'm like, I feel for you. I don't, I, I, I you, you, know, you should try to work with your bank and everything else. But those things can't iterate out over 800,000 people without enormous damage. And, you know, and I know there's a theory that Trump wants to do this to shut down, you know, the government and break the back of the federal bureaucracy. These people are rank and file line people. These are mm -hmm. ordinary day-to-day -day folks. And, you know, whether you like it or not, we do not live in some sort of Ayn Randian libertarian paradise where everything is settled with either duels or contracts. There's a government out there. Most of these jobs are out there for pretty legitimate reasons. And, you know, the destructiveness of this because of Trump's, you know, behavior isn't about some deeper philosophical argument. It's just about him being a stubborn bitch about his wall. And what I think this has done is it's forced the Trump argument out of culture and symbols, you know? Like, yeah. you could, previous to this, you could have, like, a clerk in Kentucky – or a TSA worker, you know, in Alabama, be a Trump supporter yeah. because their basic day-to-day -day life was just what it was, right? 
they liked Trump because of his brashness and they liked Trump because he owns the libs and all of that. And they could do and they could tell their friends and they could vote for him and that'd be fine. He's now done something to their lives, which he was going to do anyway, I would argue. You know, I would argue that the way he was running Mm -hmm. the government was eventually going to get to them. (laughs) But he's done it in this incredibly dramatic way. He's forced a bunch of people who maybe weren't like rally attendees, you know, but who kind of just liked the idea of a Trump presidency. He's the one who's put a gun to their heads and forced them to have an opinion on him, you know. Right. And it turns out (laughs) he's forcing them to have a negative opinion, you know, so – you, you may not know this about me, but I consume a fair amount of right-wing media just because I'm curious about that world. Mm. And so I've been listening to Rush Limbaugh and listening to Glenn Beck, and they have – maybe it's the same five group of federal workers that call into all these shows. <laughs> but they have these people calling in and being like, I don't care if I'm not getting a paycheck, you know, build the wall, love me some Trump. And I don't know why I'm being start being mocking of my southern accent, some of my – Best friends. It's all right. Southern accents. I, I'm a southerner. You can mock southern accents. Right. It's all right. Those people are the exception. <laughs> and and I think a lot of that is uh, is astroturf, frankly. Yeah. Well, um, the outliers of people in the government who are now going into the first month without a paycheck of any kind, and who are getting food from soup kitchens and food pantries. The the few that are so supportive of Trump, uh, like I said, they're they're outliers in this equation. I will say this. I think the shutdown has a built-in timer in it mm-hmm. that as SNAP benefits start to expire, yep. um, you are going to see these stories accelerate well beyond the 800,000 federal workers and into two groups, um, the genuinely needy on SNAP and supplemental assistance. And you're also going to see it because there's a meaningful fraction. It's not a huge fraction. It's a meaningful fraction of Trump voters who are also on SNAP. Yeah. And that's going to hit them hard. And- the hypothetical wall versus the actual empty stomach is going to be a challenge for them in the next two weeks. It's also going to start – and this might be a segue into something else I want to talk to you about. Um, it's going to have an impact on opioid treatment. Um, yeah. And that is a thing that affects everyone. Um, but it yep. is something that Trump country has seen. It's been made visible in Trump country. I would like there, to point there's out- been some slow progress on the treatment stuff. And if it comes to a halt – there are going to be deaths that he owes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do always want to point right. out that there are just as many rich people who are junkies as poor people. It's just that rich people, rich people get to hide it for longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say junkie as with love, by the way, not a, a term of disparagement. So no one write in about that, please. And actually, so this, I'm just going to quickly say something because I don't want to talk about stuff we disagree with. But I'm going to remind you again, I know more meth heads than you do. And when you make <laughs> listen, I, I sarcasm and joking aside, uh, you know this is a country where where people are going to seek out drugs, and on the front end, we're really really terrible at preventing it for both quote unquote legal origin drugs and illegal origin drugs. But especially in the course of this op- opioid epidemic, we need to address this as. A nation. It is a legitimate public health crisis of enormous proportions. Yeah. And it's not coming over carried by the Mexican drug smugglers. It's coming from FedEx, from China, you know, a lot of it. And the fact that we've basically uh, – that Border Patrol and Customs isn't uh, going to be inspecting as many packages because they're shut down means more is going to come in. This problem is going to continue to drive us as a major 
you know, cause of death in this country. So it's going to it's going to be pretty hard. I agree. And this is just my semi-regular plea for you to not mock Trump supporters as meth addicts because they aren't necessarily. And I know more meth addicts than you do. I'm hearing you. (laughs) Very, very few of the ones that I know happen to be Trump supporters. Did you know that 80 percent of New Year's resolutions fail by February? I would argue there's both something wrong with the idea of a resolution and the idea of failing. But if your 2019 got off to a rocky start because that's how you were thinking about things, know that every day brings you a chance to start again. January 1st is just a date on the calendar. You can start new habits that support your happiest, healthiest self any day of the year. And that's why I am excited that I have Calm as a partner. It is a meditation app, the number one meditation app to help you sleep meditate and relax. If you head to calm.com slash friends, you will get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day that is called the Daily Calm. And there's also sleep stories, which are bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax before you doze off. Head to the lavender fields of France with Stephen Fry or explore New Zealand with Jerome Flynn of Game of Thrones. Bob Ross is there, too. There's soothing music, breathing exercises, gentle stretches to relax your body, and more. For a limited time, with friends like these, listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash friends. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash friends. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash friends. Give yourself the gift of calm in a happy and healthy 2019. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I want to move on a little bit to, again, a place where we can have a nice feel-good agreement, but also be terrified, which is the recent report from the director of national intelligence. Did you happen to take a look at that, my friend? I know intelligence is something you care about. And it I mean, is something I care about, but I'm not sure which one. You're talking about the Chinese report or the I'm Russian report? I'm talking about Dan Coates' report released yesterday. 
they didn't do a classified version. He felt the need to do just a public version because he's so concerned. I haven't read it yet. Oh, my friend. I haven't had time. My friend. None of this will be surprising to you. I'm going to read a bit of it and we can maybe just go from here. Traditional adversaries will continue attempts to gain and assert influence, taking advantage of changing conditions in the international environment and dominance, uh, including the weakening of post-World War II international order and dominance of Western ideals. Uh, Russian efforts to increase its influence and authority are likely to continue. The ability of individual and groups to have a larger impact than ever before is undermining traditional institutions. Do you want me to go on or are you getting sort of uh, – uh, No. You know, I think that is the intelligence community flagging the issue, as they say. Yeah. And and rightly so. What I think is interesting for, to sort of unpack it a little bit here. So there is an annual report that the Director of National Intelligence does. Mm-hmm. Usually there's a classified version – an unclassified version. And one assumes the classified version is more uh, has more depth to it, right? Uh, this year, uh, Dan Coates released an, only an unclassified version, and he hasn't said why exactly. Oh, wait, no, he said he, he believes that transparency is the key for the public to regain trust in the intelligence community. But mm. who has who's the person who's done the most to undermine the trust that people have in the intelligence community? I, I believe that would be Dan Coates' uh, uh, boss. I believe yes! That would be, uh... His immediate supervisor on the uh, on the wiring diagram there. Look, I, I think the intelligence community has been talking for a long time uh, about the degree to which the changing multipolar world has left us unprepared as a nation that is pretty much invincible on the military side. You know, no one wants to come and play in our in our on our ball field when it comes to blowing shit up. And part of the reason we're unprepared for this, for a changed world uh, with multipolar actors who aren't engaged in direct military competition with us is on the military side, on the head-to-head fight, we're pretty much invincible. We are really good at killing people and really good at blowing shit up. And if you're in a, uh, some country going up against us and you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear loud explosions and it feels like the wrath of God, that's probably the U.S. Air Force. So those things have left our competitors in the world. China, Russia, Iran, a variety of other, you know, cat and dog uh, bad guys looking for ways to disrupt our institutions, to disrupt our cohesion, to disrupt our society. They're using these tools that are not traditional military tools and they're leveraging propaganda. They're leveraging online media. They're leveraging the the, big data. They're using all these things and these things all fundamentally rely on stoking division and resentment. Now, what happens when you're a Vladimir Putin and you're like, oh, my goal is to stoke division and resentment in the United States? What happens when you've got a Donald Trump as essentially your asset, essentially your avatar to divide the country, to break the systems, to shatter institutions, to break the norms that we we are accustomed to that have worked for a long time to constrain the excesses of both sides of the political equation? You end up with the situation we're at right now. That's why it feels exhausting every day. That's why people want closure on on Mueller and everything else all the time. It's a feature, unfortunately, not a bug. Yeah. Well, it's a feature for Putin. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's definitely, <laughs> you know, what he's aiming for. There was another part of, of this report that I found interesting, which had to do with the fact that there will be, this is a quote, there will be likely be demand for greater intelligence to support domestic security driven in part by the threat of terrorism, the threat posed by international illicit drug traffic and human trafficking, and the threat to infrastructure. And for what that means to me is he's saying, like, because of these asymmetrical threats, 
we need intelligence more than ever, right? We need to be watching our own backyard in addition to everyone else's backyard uh, Mm -hmm. because we need to be able to tell the good guys from the bad guys. He does mention adequate protection for civil liberties and privacy. You know, I know that you as a more libertarian type also agree that that needs to be done. But what he's saying, I I feel like, is that we, we need to be able to know we can trust the intelligence community. Well, I think that we have reached a point, though, that's much more dangerous than that. We have somebody who, at the top of the of the intelligence community's chain, doesn't trust them. Mm-hmm. And it, he doesn't trust them because he doesn't like the truth that they tell him. And so the way our intelligence system in this country is organized and has been for a long time, and I think generally correctly so, is that it is fairly narrow as to who receives the most sensitive information. Those are the things that, that are actionable national intelligence items. And Donald Trump is overtly hostile to many of the things he's told because they don't fit the worldview that he wishes they did. They don't you know, say, you are the greatest, tallest, handsomest, sexiest man in America, and Vladimir Putin is your good friend who wants to make a good trade deal with you. They say, he disrupted our election. He's attempting to break our society. He's engaged in military operations other than war right now against our country. He's engaged in an aggressive intelligence warfare program against our country. Trump doesn't want to hear that. He doesn't want to believe that. And so, unfortunately, it's hard for the DNI to come out and say, hey, America, here's all this data we have because it blows up our sources and methods. We can't do that. But, you know, by trying to start to outline those threats and trying to educate the public a little bit, I think it's probably the right thing to do. But it's a difficult thing when you've got somebody at the top who is also trying to reduce trust in the intelligence community by the public. You know, I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to you and I think this is all right. And I just want to ask you for some, you know, shooting lessons and um, go buy shelf-stable foods. Gold ammunition and can guns. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, like I've, I've, you know, the midterms, I think, gave a lot of us kind of a sugar high, you know, we won and truth will out and, you know, things are the balance of power is on its way to being restored. And this shutdown has just reminded me just how precarious our whole society is. I mean, I hate to put it that starkly, but, you know, there, there's an old there's an old phrase and, and, you know, people laugh about it and they say, oh, that's bullshit. That phrase is no country is more than three meals away from a revolution. Mm-hmm. It just takes the right catalyst. And I don't think we're at that point. But I will say the fragility of our system has increased, the, the, the brittleness of our system has increased because Donald Trump has broken all these norms and broken all these standards and essentially governed as an authoritarian, as an estatist. And folks are terrified that the world is going to collapse around them. And he stokes that every day. Mm-hmm. And these 800,000 people that are out there you know, which when you do the math, it's it's basically about 2 million individuals affected when you count families and dependents. Those 2 million people out there are the mm-hmm. first victims of the shutdown, but not the last. Mm-hmm. It's going to get a lot worse for other people. And I do think we're going to end up in a fairly unstable political climate if this goes on. But I But I seriously believe there are some inflection points here where he can't sustain this game. As long as the Democrats, who have every card in the deck, the Democrats have every single card in the deck. If they don't break, 
they will get this thing done. We will reopen the government. The only source of weakness here is the Democrats who crave political death all the time. Well, who also have been – I mean I will say as a more you know leftward person on the scale and I'm no moderate Democrat is that this fetishization of being a moderate has really done a number on some Democrats. Republicans for some reason are like immune to this idea <laughs> right. or they're voted out of government. But there are some Democrats who just love the idea of bipartisanship so much. I think that they are they're playing this false equivalency game with themselves where they think that striking a deal will be some kind of signal that they're the rational ones. They're absolutely out of their goddamn minds. I know. Nancy Pelosi's too smart for that, I will say. I think she is too <laughs> smart for that. We've talked about Nancy Pelosi before and about how Republicans have used her as this foil for a long time. But she is playing her cards very so well bad. so far. And I think the decision by Pelosi to tell the president, nah, you can't come and give a speech here until we reopen the government. Look, she's the speaker of a co-equal branch of government, and Republicans had become accustomed to viewing the House of Representatives as a branch a subsidiary of the Trump organization. So it's surprising for some people that she's holding her ground and standing the line here, but she really needs to. If the Democrats break him on this, if they break him, if they break the shutdown and he doesn't get a wall out of it, it has enormous political repercussions for him in 2020. Because that's the primary promise of his campaign. And I, I can tell you this empirically because in the spring of 17, we did a survey for a corporate client and they, and they wanted to know a little bit like how Trump was going to affect their, their marketplace and everything else. And we asked the question, what's the major promise of the Trump campaign? And we did it two ways. We gave them a stacked question with three answers, you know, make America great again, build the wall, tough negotiate, something, something like that. And we also asked a, a, a split sample of that with an open-ended question. So both in the, in the regular question, you know, A, B, and C, build the wall was by far, I think it was like 71% that that was the key promise of the Trump campaign. On the verbatims in the open-ended question, 90% of it was build the wall. <laughs> He's going to build the wall, make Mexico pay for it. Build the wall, build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. If the Democrats give him one fucking inch of wall, one ounce of concrete, they lose. Mm -hmm. They lose because he goes out there and he swings his dick around for the whole of 2020 and goes, I promised you I'd beat them and we'd build the wall and we're building the wall. Wouldn't be the first time that Trump convinced uh, someone that an inch was much larger than it seemed. Yeah. As I like to joke, um, the, you, know, you can imagine Trump saying, oh, that's nine inches. Your ruler must be wrong. <laughs> You know, sorry, shouldn't laugh too much. You're allowed to mock small penis presidents. Oh, I, I really would like to. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was also going to point out is that this is also, you could argue, a dry run for impeachment. It is very much a dry run for impeachment. It is very much a focused uh, moment where you have to maintain and discipline the caucus yep. to move them forward appropriately. We have to prevent the idea the false idea that you're negotiating with somebody who is in any way going to display good faith. I mean, when this first you know emerged, this whole, like, oh, we'll, we'll trade you the wall for a temporary three-year DACA. Well, remember, Kirsten Nielsen and Stephen Miller run Homeland Security. <laughs> Does anybody think that's a good deal? I mean, that's like the Hannibal Lecter daycare center. There's no good outcome from trusting these people. They are fundamentally untrustworthy. They are acting in bad faith at all times. They are motivated by evil. 
And so when you when you have people that you absolutely understand, when you understand how they've behaved over the last two years, you should recognize that negotiating with them and thinking that they're going to be part of the solution is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, they're just, I mean, you've said it, like just, I've been thinking about my memoir of this time, just calling it bad faith. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because it works on a lot of different levels, right? I mean, there's the, the fact that, again, the evangelicals refuse to split from this guy. No matter, he can't, there's literally nothing he can do. <laughs> Listen, if he declared that he's a Wiccan and that the White House would now be serving hot and cold running baby, they would still say, well, you know. Yeah, uh, the, you know, Kavanaugh. At, at least it's not those, <laughs> at least it's not those high tone, fancy Manhattan elites <laughs> looking down their nose at us. And then the, there is the more, you know, and then there's the kind of bad faith we usually talk about, which is like, he just doesn't, none of it means anything. I'm going to take some deep breaths. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. I have some serious questions for you. Yay. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, EFTs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with confidence. Robinhood is simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. And the Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections. This is something they have that other people don't. And the collections are curated just for people like you. There are things like the 100 most popular and sectors like entertainment and social media, but there's also curated sections like companies with female CEOs. They also have analyst ratings of buy, sell, hold for every stock. Robinhood is giving listeners of this program a free stock like Apple or Ford or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at crookedfriends.robinhood.com. That's crookedfriends.robinhood.com. Most desk chairs that you might be familiar with lock the body into a 90-degree angle. When it comes to healthy posture, however, there is no such thing as the perfect position. We weren't meant to stand all day or to sit all day, and we definitely weren't meant to sit at a 90-degree angle on a stiff chair behind a desk. Our bodies were designed to move. And so while Foley's Jarvis Standing Desk is the best-reviewed desk in the world, it is just the foundation of a healthier way to work. Foley's standing desk and collection of active chairs give you the freedom to move, stretch, and be in a healthier, more comfortable position that works for your body's unique and changing needs throughout the day. Foley's careful selection of active sitting chairs, which I'm going to briefly pause and tell you what that is, they're really more like kind of stools. They either have rockers on the bottom or kind of like a pedestal thing that moves around. They are much better looking in an office than you may have had people sitting on like, you know, exercise balls or yoga balls. Which works great, I'm sure, but, you know, looks a little weird in an office. My husband actually has both the standing desk and the active stool. He loves them both. He has a bad back. So he can offer that recommendation. And I actually also really like the standing desk as well, although I do less work at it than he does. So their entire collection of chairs supports a healthier posture that aligns your spine, opens up your hips, engages your core, and improves circulation. You'll feel relief immediately, and your body and your back will thank you. It is a smarter, healthier way to work, a more balanced human way to work. To get your body moving in your workspace, go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L 
y.com slash friends fully. Desk, chairs, and things to keep you moving. As weirdly invigorating as it is to kind of talk about our culture being on the precipice of, you know, dystopia, if not already falling towards it, there is a part of me that wants to ask you very sincerely, like, what the fuck should we do? You know, because I have some ideas, but I'm curious what you think. Like, you and I have talked about personal coping strategies, you know, faith and puppies, I think would be the shorthand. Faith, family and puppies. Good strategy in general. Cats are also acceptable. What I'm are multi, you thinking? I'm a multi-pet yeah. species family. Yeah. Cats, dogs, uh, I horses. like to call it being bipetual. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but I know that there are people who, if you and I are disenchanted and feeling antsy, you know, I mean, people who don't have megaphones and don't have people that they can call and complain to, probably feeling really, really powerless. What do you think? Well, I think that you and I have lived in businesses in in both media and politics and sort of the intersection of those spaces for a long time where the adrenal stimulation is pretty constant. You know, we're always moving to the next crisis. There's another thing happening. We're thinking about stuff all the time that's that's stressful. Most people had the luxury in American politics of not spending every waking minute with their eye on the news. And didn't have that sense that that something existential is lurking every day and that, you know, the president could wake up in the morning and tweet something and nuke Belgium. None of this stuff, you know, affected ordinary Americans in any great degree, really since the Vietnam War. It's really the closest parallel I think we can draw to something that just obsessed and rended society into various camps and factions. And most folks have lost one particular thread. They think it's all gone. They think that Trump has won in the end. And they, they've forgotten that we have two real secret weapons in this country. One is that the Constitution and the law still exist. They may be stressed and strained, but they still exist. They still have enormous power. They still have an ability to keep our institutions intact and to steer us past this current crisis, not easily, not you know without some metaphorical and hopefully not, but you know, but physical bloodshed. And the second secret weapon we have is that we're actually a pretty resilient country. We have been strained before. We've been strained by things like Watergate and Iran Contra. We're and also economic literally broken once. So, but people feel broken right now. They feel scared. That's a feature of Trumpism. They, he wants their fear. What I try to do myself and what I offer to other people is that, and you and I probably, I think we said this before, but the other key in terms of managing your anxiety and dispelling your sense of powerlessness is community. I personally would advocate any kind of march any kind of, you know, community building activity like you can do, especially one that, that puts you with people that don't necessarily look like you or think like you. Right. Whether that's going ahead and volunteering at a soup kitchen or food pantry right now, um, whether that is being a part of a protest that may not be on this specific issue but is related to it. I think the more that you can reach out beyond your own internal fear, 
the better chance we have as a country. Well, you know, and, and I'll open up on something. You know, in 15, when I decided I can't stand for this, I can't give in to this bullshit, I made a decision in 2015 that I knew would cost me a lot of money, a lot of money. If I'd stayed quiet, if I'd shut up, I could have, you know, joined the the throngs of other consultants and milked these people dry and couldn't do it. And I had about a year of like tremendous anxiety, like I've cut like a zero off my income. This is bad. This is not smart. This is, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? And at some point I just had this nearly spiritual moment where I just basically said, you know what? It's going to work itself out and I have to do this. I have to let it work itself out. Doing the right thing sucks. Sometimes it's hard, but I I feel so vindicated <laughs> by the decision in the long term that that fear, you know, that fear that I'd taken a 30-year career in politics and thrown it away transformed itself into this sense of empowerment. Once you stop letting him make you scared, once you stop letting his people make you scared, and I think a lot of folks are scared of what they see of his people at these rallies mm-hmm. and these alt-right assholes. They're scared that these people are, are on this this edge all the time and they'll defend the maximum leader up to and including violence. And once you stop being scared of them and stop letting the threat, whether it's a big threat about you know your, your physical you know, safety or it's the sort of wider threat about I'm gonna wreck the country you love, once you get over that fear and start engaging in action and start engaging in in advocacy, and there's a million different ways to do this. You're absolutely right. You know, some of it's volunteering, some of it's registering to vote, some of it's running for office, some of it's speaking out, writing, talking, praying. There's a million avenues to empower yourself in the face of authoritarianism. You know, 40 Democrats took seats in the in the U.S. House of Representatives and took power back from Donald Trump. He has partly only the power we give him. Yes, those all of those things are true. You know, uh, there is strength and safety in numbers, and the more people you can connect yourself to. And again, I would stress the more people who aren't necessarily like you. And I, by that, I mean people of different colors, different faiths, different income levels. <laughs> You know, because right. the pain that he's inflicted runs across a lot of different categories. I think that for better or for worse, Trump has given this country a lesson in intersectionality, you know, which mm. used to be like a academic buzzword. And now is some way that we kind of explain like the different ways um, that we're connected and the different ways that we feel this abuse of power. So I would say like whether it's a soup kitchen or a women's shelter, whether it's an LGBTQ organization or registering people to vote or yes, a shelter for pets too. Sure. Anything that is going to connect you is going to be a, a way of, of fighting back. And you know, it's funny. I had a conversation last night, in fact, with a Republican who said to me, he "Goes, I don't know what to do. I'm terrified." You know, I, he does not support Trump, but he's like, "If I say anything publicly, I'm going to lose, you know, any influence I have." And I said, "Then don't be public. Hmm. Go in and corrode them from within." Go in and work from the inside. Present alternative viewpoints slowly, steadily, surely. Maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's not going to work. But you'll know you're doing something that's inside your boundaries that you can do. You'll know you're doing something that even if you have all these other obligations to to maintain your public side, you're doing something that is trying to get us back to 
the party that we joined, you know, yay, so many years ago. Um, and it's difficult. It really is. It's very, it's very problematic for people to to take a public step. Even people who oppose him often go, yeah, I don't want to be out there and put myself in front of these crazy people. And they rely on that. I mean, part of the part of the the, the Trump trolling operation, both foreign and domestic, is to try to suppress voices who speak out over social media against Trump. Mm-hmm. So we're in a situation where you know people have a number of options. Uh, but it just takes a, that that first step of courage to get there. And I guess I would say, like, I, I that says sound like the bravest way to use your power, this friend of yours. I will admit that sometimes you have to use your inside voice in order to discover your outside voice. Right. You know? and, and this is a person who could be very influential in a lot of subtle ways. And, you know, you have to treat it as an intelligence operation in some ways. You know, mm-hmm. you're putting you're putting people who are going to be influence points down the line because – Without anybody in there, it's just going to be a complete vacuum. I'm sort of rolling my eyes at Committee to Save America stuff, but but you have to start somewhere. That's where I'm going to decide. Yeah, to, you to... kind of do. You kind of have to start somewhere. You got to, you know, small victories add up. Mm-hmm. That is also true. So we're getting to the end of our time. I have a question that I've been afraid to ask you. Yes. Which is uh, so that piece on how you voted in Florida. It's in my book. It's in the paperback. It's coming out February 24th. Oh, so how did you vote in Florida? I did not vote a straight Republican ticket. Okay, that's good to know. Okay. Are you going to make people buy the book? Come on. Don't don't Fuck yeah, I'm going to make people well, buy the book. Get out and buy the book, people. Ah! Everything Trump touches dies. Available February 24th in paperback. You added <laughs> you added that zero back onto your income, didn't you? <laughs> I might have. <laughs> you're not going to tell say, me. You're sincerely not going to tell you. Tell I will me. say this. The phrase New York Times number one bestseller will never get old. <laughs> so you're, you're sincerely not going to tell me I have to go out and buy the book? No. no. Okay. It's, it's, it's going to be in the book. Ugh, Rick. Okay, fine. I'm trying to think if there's anything else we should talk about before um, I say goodbye. Don't be a stranger. Don't you be a stranger either. Okay. Well, I think we tried to get- So uh, I just taped the pilot to my podcast. Oh. Um, so oh. I'm going to invite you to be my, I'm going to invite you to be a guest on my podcast when we get this thing booted up. Okay. Well, we, we can trade. Maybe we can do it. Yeah, I love do it. it. We'll do a crossover pod or something. I, I love it. All right. Um, Rick, All it, right. Is, it is always good to talk to you. As um, always, Anna. You will be in my thoughts and prayers. You too, my dear. All right. Talk to you, you soon. Bye-bye. And that is it for this week. If you are listening to this right now, you have either put your phone to the side while you are washing dishes and therefore are captive to me and cannot fast forward, or you are a super fan. And I have something to say to the super fans. I always get some pushback after a Rick episode. There are people who I think are understandably upset by the amount of time I give to someone who has worked fairly sincerely and for a long time against the values that I claim to hold. And to that, I can only give myself the excuse that I kind of kind of talk about with Rick towards the end of that conversation, which is that you have to start somewhere. And Rick is a personal friend. And I have seen him grow and change. And our conversations, I feel like, help me as well as help him. It is good to talk to people who are different than you. For the most part, when I say things like that, I mean people who are of a different race or sexual orientation or gender identification, people who are marginalized and not centered. But also, it's good to talk to people who make you think about what you believe, even if what happens is you just realize you really do believe it. In any case, that is it for the show. We'll be back next week with a different guest. And remember, please, until then, 
take care of yourselves. <laughs>